This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Education for All is a global movement led by UNESCO. It began in 1990 when 155 countries adopted the World Declaration on Education for All. The movement was renewed in the year 2000 when countries agreed on the Dakar Framework for Action which committed countries to achieve education for all by the year 2015. Education for all continues to be a common phrase in educational development, but it has changed over its 26-year existence. It linked into goals two and three of the United Nations Millennium Development Goals and was tied closely to the World Bank through the funding mechanism known as the Fast Track Initiative. The movement has adapted and adopted new elements and has included additional actors such as non-governmental organizations, human rights activists, and philanthropic organizations and individuals. My guest today, Leon Tickley, argues in a forthcoming article in Comparative Education Review that education for all is best understood as a regime, borrowing an idea from international relations. He says there are a set of implicit or explicit principles, norms, rules, and decision-making procedures around which actors' expectations converge. Of course, there are also tensions within the regime of education for all, and in this article he attempts to think through what these might be. Leon Tickley is a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Bristol. His work focuses on education in low-income countries. He is known for his theoretical work on how to conceptualize education as an aspect of the post-colonial condition. Leon Tickley, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. It's a great pleasure to be here. You have a forthcoming journal article in the Comparative Education Review that looks at education for all. What is education for all? Well... I think um, I think uh, usually it's it's uh, it's conceived as a, a movement, a global movement uh, that uh, has its origins around the Jomtien Conference, Education for All Conference, um, and uh, that really you know aimed to put uh, education for all on the global agenda. Um, I think it's often seen as a a kind of a network, if you like, of uh, of actors around a common set of uh, ideas or principles around education for all uh, that became instantiated in the Dakar framework. Um, but the way that I see it in this article is really to try and develop that basic understanding, but to see it as a, a regime, a, glo- a global regime of educational governance. And it's that that, uh, that is the focus of the article. So before we get into what a regime is and and how you see um, education for all as a regime, I'm just kind of, I'm interested in, you know, who are the actors that are in this network that you say that are are part of the education for all movement? Right. Well, I mean, that's that's a very good question. So I think, you know, at the outset, uh, obviously UNICEF and the World Bank uh, and uh, UNESCO uh, played an important role in terms of uh, uh, global institutions. Um, 
key donors as well um, from from the the the, the uh, large Western economies uh, played an important role. But I think also it's important to to acknowledge uh, the role of uh, of international NGOs and uh, more grassroots movements as well, and of course governments. Um, so th- including you know the the, the governments of uh, low income countries as well as high income countries Uh, but of course the power and the influence that these different actors had varied in what way well i think uh you know from from inception i think uh if you look back at the the history of of efa i think one can see you know the influence in particular of the world bank for example um in terms of the way that uh that uh, EFA was shaped, as well as uh, UNICEF at the time uh, and UNESCO, the global institutions had uh, in, uh, had a you know, very powerful influence. I think the the global NGOs, uh, you know, uh, mobilised and and managed to have some some kind of influence. And if you look at Karen Mundy and other people's work, you know they they record this uh, very well. Um, uh, Mario Novelli and uh, Tony Verge's uh, work also looks at the the influence over the years of uh, of, of uh, global civil society, um, and you know to some extent uh, low income countries had a, a say in to the extent that they were involved in the discussions. But I think again, looking at people like Kenneth King and Pauline Rose's analysis of that time. You know, their voices tended to be subordinate, really, to those of the global institutions. Oftentimes, when we hear about education for all, we oft- we also hear about the Millennium Development Goals. Um, what's the connection between these two different ideas? Well, I think they have uh, different origins, they have different ge- genealogies, you know. So I think, um, you know, EFA emerged at a particular juncture in response to the need to create some sort of um, coherence around uh, uh, education and aid um, in, in the issue area of education uh, 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 aid. Um, but I think the Millennium Development Goals uh, have a slightly different origin, Will, in the sense that, you know, they, 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 they arose uh, uh, from a different history, a different global history, Although, of course, what's interesting is that they have impacted on the same issue area of, uh, of education. What sort of discourses are embedded in education for all? Well, I think you know, one can see broadly two major discourses that I think have shaped education for all. So I think on the one hand, one can see uh, an instrumentalist kind of discourse, an economistic kind of discourse um, that has often uh, seen education for all in terms of human capital and then a more rights-based kind of uh, discourse that has uh, been generally more expansive in its view of what education for all is. And I think, you know, both of these discourses are linked to different kinds of epistemic communities. I think um, the, the, uh, the uh, human capital discourse has been developed by you know intellectuals researchers uh, uh, around, clustered around the global financial institutions in particular 
whilst uh, the the rights-based uh, discourse has its origins in the human rights regime, uh, but also in you know has has been developed by uh, by uh, uh, by by researchers, intellectuals, and others working clustered around UNESCO, for instance, in the Global Monitoring Report in the case of education, but also by uh, by various INGOs and 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 by researchers uh, linked to that and by the research community, broader research community, that's uh, been informed by more of a rights-based approach. So two very powerful discourses that have shaped EFA, I think, in often quite contradictory ways. And I think that's quite important for understanding the way that EFA has evolved in terms of its governing principles and norms. So so education for all on the one hand is about getting everyone education because it is education is seen as a human right and then on the other hand it's about education for all is about getting everyone education that is defined in the human capital perspective where it's very much about um future employment that one would get through education. Yes, yes, I think broadly that's the case, Will. Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's important not to, you know, to understand that that when we label these discourses, if you like, you know, it is a heuristic device. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, to understand uh, at a general level uh, how EFA has been shaped discursively. But of course, there are overlaps and the boundaries between these two discourses are permeable, you know, they, and, and if that's reflected at the level of the epistemic communities that are responsible for, you know, uh, for, for elaborating these discourses and generating the kinds of evidence and research that kind of goes into the way that these different discourses have evolved and that they, they are again overlapping uh, communities. It'd be very difficult to find someone in the World Bank, for example, who wasn't at some level influenced by human rights discourse. Or conversely, if you look at, um, you know, some of the the uh, the human rights uh, understandings of EFA, you know, they, they, there's also a concern with uh, with economic uh, uh, goals as well as uh, as more social development goals. And so, what sort of contemporary shifts are you seeing in in the education for all movement or perhaps even a regime? Well, I think what we're seeing at a very general level is a shift uh, over the last uh, decade or two decades uh, away from access as the the main uh, focus to learning uh, and uh, a particular conception of learning. Um, So, and I think, you know, that's also linked uh now of course in the context of the sdgs to the uh, sustainable development goals the sustainable development goals to uh to to a concept of sustainable development which is different than how is that different from the millennium development goals for instance well i think uh you know one can one can see this at different levels so i think broadly speaking um the 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 sustainable development goals are more expansive they're, they're, and they they are linked to more explicitly to you know these discourses around sustainable development 
Um, so, you know, the Millennium Development Goals were very much linked to a view of poverty eradication uh, or uh, alleviating poverty as a kind of central organising principle, that, uh, whereas the Sustainable Development Goals are, are linked to, I think, contradictory ideas about what sustainable development is. What, what makes it contradictory? Well, I think on the one hand, again, you know, this goes back to these two major tropes that have traversed the, the history of education for all. Um, you know, the, the more economistic uh, understanding and the more rights-based understanding. So you have, you know, within the more co- economistic understanding, people within the World Bank over a number of years now, you know, um, articulating a view of sustainable development that's uh, that's really organised around the idea of sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Um, so again, you know, growth is, is at the, the, the heart, is at the centre really of their, their interests, their concerns. Um, whereas in a rights-based approach, it's a, a more, a broader, more expansive view of human development, uh, which includes a concern with sustainable livelihoods, but uh, has a, a broader focus in terms of uh, an understanding of human well-being. So beyond growth, beyond economic growth beyond economic growth and and in in the in the rights-based uh, discourse you know going back to Brundtland you know uh, commission you can see you know the the three pillars if you like of sustainable development uh, of which economic uh, economic uh, development sustainable economic development is one pillar um, but then of course uh, sustainable social development and then you know uh, Obviously, the, the the whole issue of sustainable environment. So it's a, it leads to a, a more uh, expansive view, I think, of uh, of sustainable development. Not to say that economists don't take these other issues seriously. I mean, I think the issue of sustainable economic growth uh, and inclusive economic growth uh, includes issues around, you know, how to make sure that economic growth involves environmental concerns and also is in socially inclusive but it's the principal focus in that discourse is continues to be you know this view of economic growth and I think in that sense you know you could say that um, not an awful lot has changed in the sense that the underlying view of what economic growth is and how it's and how it's uh, de- and and you know what what makes economies grow the kinds of policies that make economies grow in terms of you know free market neoliberal kinds of ideas hasn't fundamentally changed in the world bank i think those ideas are still very prominent and therein i think lies lies the a contradiction quite a major contradiction because it's the effects of untrammeled uh, market uh, growth that i think has had such a devastating effect on the global environment and so how does the education for all movement fit into this shifting governance structure that you're you're speaking of well i think you know it's it's um it's i think it's been a very important played a very important role in terms of um providing a focus i think it's it's been uh, uh fairly resilient as a as a a, a a movement a discourse a regime um in terms of uh providing 
a way of thinking about uh, education uh, gl globally in terms of global education policy that can bring together these different interests and uh, is compatible at some at a very general level with these two discourses. So, you know, I think education for all, you know, has a legitimatory purpose. I think it, it has a legitimatory purpose in the sense that it needs to, uh, there needs to be some overall coherence in the way that powerful global actors and different kinds of actors come together within a field such as education. And I think it does that. And in doing that, it, it kind of provides some sort of legitimation for the way that uh, powerful actors work. Um, so, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's, it's been important in that sense. But of course, you know, it hasn't been immune from, from these wider contradictions either. And one can see that in the way that uh, EFA has evolved and in the current, its current uh, 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 stage of development, where I think we're actually seeing it uh, change in terms of uh, uh, its, some of its basic underlying principles and norms. Can you go into more detail about that and maybe provide an example of, of how you see the change of, of education for all over time um, and up to this contemporary moment? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, within, uh, within a, um, a, a human capital uh, kind of way of thinking about it, I think, you know, there have been in, there have been shifts there, as we all know, in the way that uh, human capital theory itself has evolved. So I think, you know, the early emphasis on primary education, for example, um, has given way to, uh, to, to an emphasis now on, you know, the knowledge economy and the view that actually, you know, you need to also prioritise uh, different levels of, uh, of, of uh, skill in order to to develop a, a knowledge economy, not just basic education. Um, but and also, you know, linked to that is the view by, you know, Hanishek and Vusman and, and other economists linked within a human capital approach that, you know, learning rather than years of schooling is a better predictor of economic growth, which has led to this shift uh, towards towards learning within a human capital framework. So I think that's very powerfully reflected in the way that EFA has emerged and the, the changes in the priorities that you see. Uh, you know, you see, for example, the World Bank uh, investing more now in, in higher education, for example, as are some of the other uh, uh, major donors. Um, and uh, you see, you know, this emphasis on learning reflected in the World Bank's uh, Learning for All document. Uh, DFID as well, our Department for International Development, now talks about learning for all. Uh, so, you know, you can see that in, this, in the way that uh, learning has become much more of a focus than access. But I think, you know, from a rights-based perspective too, there's been, there have been major shifts. So you can see uh, within, you know, uh, the, if one follows the, you know, the way that the Global Monitoring Report has evolved over the years, one can see, for example, an increasing emphasis on marginalised groups. So if one looks back at the Dakar framework, you know, there's an acknowledgement of, I think, in, in, at that time of, you know, uh, different kinds of marginalised groups, like girls, or girls and women, for example, 
But I think that kind of analysis has become more more nuanced and has become more to the forefront, linked partly to a realisation that, you know, donor agendas haven't always targeted the most needy, uh, whether those being conflict affected zones or uh, people uh, or the poorest within within countries. So I think, you know, the both changes within both the kind of human capital and a human rights framework have led to uh, to you know tangible shifts in policy between uh, Dakar and um, uh, Muscat and now the the SDGs. And those those are the conferences that gave rise to the education for all movement and then its various um, changes and iterations over time. Yeah. So yeah, the the Jomtien, uh uh, uh, 1990 conference, the Dakar conference, 2000, and then uh, the recent Muscat uh, conference last last year, uh, and uh, yeah, the, these have been important. The world forums have been very important in, you know, going back to that idea of a, a EFA, you know, having a, an important uh, role in terms of providing cohesive focus, but also legitimation for for the way that uh, different actors work in in this area uh, have, have been very important these these uh, international conferences that have brought together uh, very different kinds of stakeholders so in your article you make the argument that education for all is a regime now what is a regime on on basic levels what is a regime well i mean it's defined um, within, you know, international relations um, as, as sets of implicit or explicit principles, norms, rules and decision-making procedures around which actors' expectations converge. So, you know, um, at, a, at a general level, it's within international relations uh, and discourse, it's a, it's a global, inst- they are global institutions, but... Uh, at a at a slightly different uh, level uh, from uh, global institutions that we're more familiar with, like the World Bank or you know UNESCO, whatever they might be, um, they are really ways of uh, 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 they they are you know uh, they revolve around particular uh, treaties or agreements uh, um, frameworks. In the case of education for all. Uh, within a particular issue area that uh, bring together different kinds of global actors. And so how how is the education for all um, a global regime of this educational governance? Well, I, I think it, uh, it coheres around a particular uh, set of principles. Uh, so, you know, if one looks back over the last 20 years, one can see some consistency at the level of principles. Um, the Global Monitoring Report, for example, um, you know, has the six Dakar goals. And I think these have provided a consistent way of evaluating progress towards uh, education for all and have served as a focal point at the level of principle for, for, uh, for, for the EFA regime. Um, but then one can see, you know, at the level of... Uh, of norms, you know, uh, consistency again over that period in terms of how aid effectiveness, for example, 
is conceived. Um, so, you know, one can see, you know, from the Paris Declaration to the more recent Busan Agreement, quite a lot of, you know, continuity in the kinds of norms and expectations uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that uh, govern the behaviour of uh, different actors. Um, and, uh, you know, also in, in terms of the, the targets, so if, if one looks at the, 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 the actual targets um, governing uh, uh, EFA, um, those have also uh, stayed uh, 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 fairly uh, consistent over the last uh, 20 years, although I think there have been some quite important shifts, as I've, as I've mentioned. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the rules, I think, um, you know, governing the regime, the, the rules governing donors and recipients, there's been consistency. And also in terms of the decision making procedures. So I think, you know, it's, it's quite a useful way, I think, of trying to understand how the behaviour, the expectations, the actions of important actors uh, have cohered over a, a given period of time and a way of understanding how those might change as well. Has power changed? Like the, the way in which power is, is wielded, I guess, through these dominant actors? Because, you know, education for all, it's rarely spoken about in, say, the United States or Japan. It's always spoken about in developing countries, poorer countries, like you said, mar- with marginalized uh, populations. Um, but... You're saying that the regime of education for all has changed over time. Um, and I just am curious, do, do you see the a change in the way in which power operates? Yes, I do. And, you know, I think I think here it's important to understand how power operates in global governance. Um, and I think, you know, the way that we conceive it in international comparative education um you know differs i think you know you have uh, people emphasize i think different aspects of power um so i think you know within kind of more liberal institutional kinds of discourse you have a concern with um you know the the relative influence of different institutions uh the extent to which they can compel uh, that you know, different governments and different institutions can compel other governments and institutions to do things. Then you have a kind of more, uh, uh, you know, a Marxist uh, uh, influence or neo-Marxist, uh, you know, influence within international comparative education that's emphasised uh, structural power, you know, the the underlying uh, forces, dynamics of global capitalism, the... Uh, the uh, 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 historical tensions between uh, different factions of capital, but also between different classes that provides the ultimate uh, explanation for, for, for change and, and power dynamics. And uh, then, you know, we've seen in the cultural turn, you know, over the last 20 years or so, an increasing uh, interest in, in uh, discourse and discursive power, the way that uh, 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 different kinds of discourses have their own constitutive effects. So I think, you know, what I've tried to do in this article is to draw on more recent understandings of power as, as 
you know, involving all of these different kinds of, of power and how they interact. And I think that's 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 very important. I think, you know, and I think, you know, there, there are different ways of conceptualising this, but I think Barnett and Duval's typology, I think, for me, provides quite an interesting way of thinking about it. What is that typology? Well, they talk about four different broad types of power. So there's the, you know, the... Uh, institutional power, which is the influence that uh, governments have, uh, relative influence that governments have over the the major global institutions. So, you know, if you look at the boardrooms of the World Bank or or uh, uh, the IMF or OECD, you know, one can see a, a dominance of uh, Western industrialized countries and and you know factions of capital linked that are based in those countries. Uh, one can see a lesser, you know, an influence, but a lesser influence of the rising powers and, uh, you know, and uh, and then a lesser influence still of, uh, you know, governments from low-income countries. So I think the whole idea of institutional power is useful because at a, at a basic level, it allows you to, to see in practical terms how different interests are physically represented, you know, in, in these kinds of boardrooms and so on where decision making is made but then they talk about compulsory power which is obviously linked to institutional power but it's the extent to which different institutions different governments can actually compel other institutions and governments to to do things and I think that's that's interesting Uh, that's important in the context of EFA for example where you know um, clearly you know the ability of northern governments to uh, to to compel southern governments to you know adopt a particular kind of uh, economic or education policy uh, is much greater than uh, than southern governments have to compel northern governments to comply to 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 the, the, the their, their commitments under uh, agreements on, uh, for example, the proportion of their GDP that should be committed to aid. So, you know, I think compulsory power is a, an interesting lens, uh, again, through which to, to view power. And, you know, these two kinds of power are then embedded within kind of wider, more diffuse and, and less tangible kinds of power um, that, that I was mentioning before. So, you know, the structural power um, the way that global capitalism is organised, you know, means that um, uh, that you know some regions, some countries of the world are are less wealthy than others fundamentally, and that within these different regions and countries of the world, you have uh, interests that are more or less powerful based on their their position in relation to the global capitalist economy and how much capital they have. Uh, how much influence they're able to wield uh, financially, and so on, and then of course, yeah, and so so that that has an enormous effect on uh, you know the the ability, the compulsory power that uh, the different governments and uh, and also you know different interests within governments and within countries can have on policy. But then of course, discursive power, you know, and this is something. I've been interested in over uh, over a, a number of years, and, and others have been uh, deeply interested in um, how you know through a Foucauldian perspective, you know, discourse, different discourses, 
have their own constitutive effect. So, you know, if one looks at, for example, you know, human capital and human rights uh, discourses we've been talking about uh, this morning, um, they are, you know, they are predominantly Western in origin. They are, they have their roots fundamentally in the European Enlightenment. And that, I think, has implications now in, uh, in, in, in global governance um, to the extent, for example, that, uh, you know, rising powers, including China, might buy into those kinds of discourses. And um, they have their own discourses, of course, about, um, you know, development and about education and development that are more linked to their ideas of South-South collaboration and win-win situations and so on. Um, but of course, you know, these discourses have been very, very powerful. Uh, human capital and rights-based uh, discourses have been extremely powerful uh, in, in, in shaping uh, the principles and norms of EFA. So I think understanding power multidimensionally in that way, I think is very important. And I think it's linked also to, you know, at a, at a more meta-theoretical level to this idea of, you know, critical realism, which I think, um, you know, uh, uh, is is gaining increasing kind of purchase in in international comparative education. Um, the, the idea that, uh, you know, um, the idea of multi-causality, the idea that, you know, uh, there are different kinds of underlying structures and mechanisms that give rise to different kinds of power. And you have to understand that, you know, and this complexity that gives shape to something like EFA. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the future of education for all? Well, I mean, I think... You know, people still talk about education for all. I don't think it's going to go away, you know, quickly as a kind of discourse or a language. But I do think that one can see over the broader term a shift. And that shift, I think, is more towards learning for all or learning for sustainable development. And I think, you know, one can see that in the major discourses of the leading global institutions, the World Bank, Diffid and so on, as we talked about earlier, the way that they describe the issue area now, the way that they describe the agenda, it's much more in terms of learning for all. Um, one can see it, you know, also in terms of, uh, you know, the, the rise in this discourse of sustainable development uh, as a kind of organising uh, principle or set of principles around which, uh, you know, uh, aid and development thinking in different issue areas is expected to cohere. So I think, you know, we're seeing, I think these kinds of shifts are never absolute. It's not kind of, I don't think we've seen a sudden cutoff point just because the SDGs have been adopted where we now talk about learning or for sustainable development or education for sustainable development. But I do think that, um, you know, there is a gradual shift away from uh, education for all. And I think we'll see that increasingly. Well, Leon Tickley, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. 
It's an absolute pleasure, Will. Uh, thank you for taking interest in my work. And uh, yes, uh, good luck with your, your project. I think it's very valuable. Leon Tickley is a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Bristol. His forthcoming Comparative Education Review article is entitled The Future of Education for All as a Global Regime of Educational Governance. Next week, I speak with Francine Menashe about the Global Partnership for Education. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education, SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.